you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Good morning. On the evening of the day, the first of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then disciples were glad that they saw Jesus. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he had breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven to them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of his nails, and place my finger in the mark of his nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that you are a God who has conquered death. You did not leave us in our sin and our hopelessness and a helplessness, but because you're a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, you came to rescue us. You did not just send your angels or your servants but you sent your Son, God the Son, who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who loved the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and loved his neighbor as himself, who laid his life down and rose again. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, we can um, endure pandemics and hurricanes and economic loss. We can endure physical pain and suffering and sickness and oppression and tribulation, even death. Because you are Lord and you rose and those who have died trusting in the promises of God will one day arise to life and be brought into heaven, into the feast of the land where we will all feast in the house of Zion. Father, we love you. We praise you. We pray for our nation, our world, for the first responders, for the essential services, for government and state officials, 
We pray for our family that cannot be with us. We pray for the hospitals, the nurses, the doctors, the healthcare workers that are bravely risking infection to serve their fellow men. Father, may we be bold as a church not to be consumed with conspiracy theories and grumbling and complaining, Lord, but that we would be a beacon of hope in the midst of a dark world, that we would proclaim a Christ who has died to take away our sin and a Christ who has rose victorious, who conquered sin and death and is coming again, who as he sits at the Father's right hand, And I pray that we would be bold and declare, my Lord and my God, that all may hear the witness of the apostles who saw the resurrected Lord those days and put their faith in Christ, that they may have eternal life. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I know we're running a little bit late. But it's Easter, and we need to celebrate. And since all of you are comfortable at home, um, you can uh, go ahead and um, enjoy this uh, and hear God's Word this morning. I want to give you my big idea right off the bat. Um, Not a, a fancy intro, but I want you to know right off the bat what I am declaring to you today. What I believe the Um, Apostle John is giving us here in John chapter 20, the very culmination of his writing is this, that those who trust the declaration of the risen Christ by faith have peace with God. Those who trust the declaration of the risen Christ by faith have peace with God. They're able to have peace when hope hurts. They're able to have peace when hope hurts, when grace amazes them, and then when faith shines. When hope hurts, when grace amazes, and when faith shines. We begin in verses 24 and 25 as we see when hope hurts and we feel the agony of Thomas in his writing. If you notice in verse 24, now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Thomas, for the past three years, was devoted to Jesus. He believed in Jesus. He trusted in Jesus. Three years he had been following Jesus from everywhere from Nazareth to Jerusalem, from the Sea of Galilee to the upper room. Jesus had led him, um, and, and Thomas had left everything behind to be able to follow his master. He witnessed unexpected mighty works, deeds and powerful healings that he never expected. And he heard the words of Jesus who possessed authority unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus was, or Thomas was convinced 
as Peter on the road to Emmaus says, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But everything came unraveled. And it came unraveled quickly. Thomas watched in horror as Jesus, his his rabbi, his teacher, his master, was betrayed by one of their own. He was falsely convicted before the religious leaders and the government leaders, and he was murdered on a cross. But it wasn't a quick death. Jesus was humiliated and mocked. He was stripped naked and he was flogged and he was mocked and he was nailed to a cross that is normally reserved for scoundrels and for criminals and for traitors. And after Jesus had been nailed to the cross in six short fleeting hours, Jesus breathed his last And everything that Thomas thought he believed died with Jesus. I would imagine the several days after the crucifixion were excruciating for Thomas and all the disciples. They lived in fear. They lived in fear, would the Jews be coming for them as well as the disciples of Jesus? Would the doors that they were in, in, uh, would those locks hold them tight so the Jewish, Jewish leaders could not come inside and get them? They were in disbelief and thinking, how in the world did this happen? How did it unravel so quickly? One week he's hailed as the Messiah, the one who was come in the name of the Lord, the rightful heir of Jesse's or, or David's throne. And the next week he's slaughtered and murdered like a lamb that is silent before its shears. And there was probably great confusion for Thomas and the disciples alike. What's next? What do we do now? What do we have left? That was the case for all the disciples and Thomas until that Sunday night. That first Sunday night where Thomas was away from the other disciples. He might have been taking a walk to try to sort things out. He might have been uh, running an errand for the disciples. He may have been trying to look into a business deal now that he had to move on. We simply don't know where Thomas was that night. But we know something when he got back. His world changed. When he got back, his faith that was already shaken by the earthquake of Jesus' death began to feel the aftershocks and the tremblings of confusion. Notice verse 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, who was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. It's almost too cruel to be true. Remember, Thomas is absolutely shell-shocked. He's weighed down by the guilt of the fact that when Jesus' hour of need, he abandoned him. He's angry, feeling with angry with Judas, who uh, betrayed Jesus and went and hung himself. He's grieving this horrific death that his dear friend, his master, his teacher, Jesus, has died. And he's trying to come to grips with the reality that he has to start over and he doesn't know where. And now, when he comes back into this room, the disciples are telling them they've seen the Lord. And you can almost hear Thomas saying in his mind, fool me once, 
shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. There was no way that Thomas was going to get burnt again by religious hope. The bitter disappointment of the last two days was agonizing, and he would never, ever allow himself to feel that way again. He would never be blindsided, and he refused to be hoodwinked. And notice in 25 what he says. Unless I see his hands and the mark of his nails and place my fingers in the mark of the nails and my, place my hand in his side, I will never believe. The evidence was irrefutable. There were many eyewitnesses. Mary, Jesus' mother, stood beside his cross. Mary, James and Joseph' mother, stood beside Mary. Mary Magdalene was there, and Joanna was there. Even John, the beloved disciple, at first scattered, but he made his way to the foot of the cross. He was there. Jesus was dead. They all saw it. Nicodemus and, and um, Joseph of Maricea, Arimathea took Jesus' body down from the cross and he laid it in the tomb. Jesus was dead. Stone cold dead. But now the disciples who were locked in the upper room were seeing ghosts, so Thomas thought. In fact, the women that morning of Sunday, the first day, went to the tomb and they claimed that they couldn't find Jesus' body. And Mary Magdalene uh, was keeps, is now telling everybody that she had met Jesus outside the tomb. And Peter and John ran to the tomb when they heard the words of the women, and they too corroborate, corroborated what the women were telling him. Something was going on, but Thomas refused to be so gullible. He needed facts. He wasn't a person to be convinced by the rustling of the wind. He wasn't convinced by the tingling of his, uh, of his nerves down his spine. Thomas said ghost stories are not resurrections. And Thomas was unwilling to believe the word and the testimony of the women and the disciples. He had to touch the wounds. He had to rule out any trickery. He had to see to believe. D.A. Carson, in his book Scandalous, says there are many reasons for doubt. It may be just simply ignorance. It may be worldview choices that you cannot uh, uh, believe. It may be the process of maturity. When a, a person comes to maturity, they start to doubt what they thought they knew as children. Sometimes it's the slow drift of 10,000 little choices that lead you to unbelief and there's no going back. Sometimes it's simply sleep deprivation or a deep existential crisis, uh, um, the loss of a loved one, the um, physical health, uh, job loss, something like that. But for Thomas, it was none of these things. Thomas experienced a profound religious disappointment. He simply couldn't endure the pain of failed hope again. It was way too hard. He couldn't believe. His doubt was too real, too bitter, too burning. Ocean Park, some of you may, this morning may be like Thomas. You 
grew up in the church and, or you attended church for a long time in your adulthood, you know all the Sunday school answers and most of the Sunday school answers are Jesus. You've sang all the songs, you've prayed all the prayer, you've recited all the creeds, you've memorized all the Bible verses. You truly believed it. But now you profoundly doubt. And maybe you no longer believe. Jesus didn't come through when you needed him. He didn't come through the way you expected him, the way you had hoped for. Your loved one died. You lost your job again. Your spouse is still a jerk. You've been legitimately hurt by the church. You feel like your most sincere prayers have once again fallen on deaf ears, so you've put barbed wire around your heart, and you have made the conditions of belief impossible. You simply can't risk hoping again, so you feel like you can't trust Jesus. Sometimes, for those of you who feel that way, Hope, you have hope and your disappointment, but your hope was not in Jesus. Your hope was in good things. Good things that were given by God. Maybe things like family and faith and doctrine or a pastor or your marriage or your church. Good things that are made to enjoy. But when those things are made your hope, those things will inevitably let you down but not when your hope is in Jesus and what Jesus has done even when hope hurts, when you don't understand. This morning, as we look at Thomas's experience, we realize this, that those who trust the declaration of the risen Christ by faith have peace with God even when hope hurts. Even when you don't understand, even when you're confused, even what you don't like what God is doing, we can trust the risen Christ by faith. We can trust when hope hurts, but we can also trust when grace amazes us. Eight days later, in verse 26, uh, it says, Eight days later, his disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them. I don't know what it was like for those seven agonizing days that Thomas is struggling with the reports of the women, the, the accounts of, of Peter and J, uh, John, the other disciples who have said they have heard the Lord. Peter and John's words keep repeating through their, their minds. The, the tomb was empty. The grave clothes were laid aside. How many times Mary Magdalene's voice repeated, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And how many times the disciples, one after the other, told him, we have seen the Lord. He was here. Thomas's faith was weak. But the good news is this. His Savior was strong. Notice verse 26. A week passes. Although doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said like he had that week before. Peace be with you. Jesus came to Thomas in peace. 
He didn't come to Thomas and chide him for his obstinance. He didn't rebuke him for his weak faith. He didn't scold him for his failure to understand the necessity of the Messiah's suffering and death and resurrection. He greeted Thomas with the same words he greeted his disciples a week before. Peace be with you. Shalom. Even more, he extended his hand to Thomas. And in verse 27, he said, Put your fingers and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it by my side. Jesus' supernatural ability and knowledge is demonstrated that he met Thomas's demands when Thomas didn't even tell him them. But more than that, Jesus is, it's not just Jesus' supernatural knowledge, but it's Jesus' grace and mercy that are demonstrated to Thomas that afternoon. Thomas refused to believe the eyewitnesses' report of the women, the corroboration of, of Peter and John, the words of the disciples who had seen them. And Jesus came a week later specifically to show grace and mercy to this most hardened skeptic of the resurrection. He came to Thomas in peace when the circumstances of his life were clouded, when everything he thought he knew, the foundations of his life had been shaken, when everything he believed he doubted and did not understand. Jesus came to him with grace and mercy, for the mercies and grace of God are new every morning. He remembers that we are dust. And he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, which Thomas needed now. But Jesus didn't let Thomas stay there. He gently and firmly moved Thomas from unbelief to belief. He said, do not disbelieve, but believe. Don't be a doubter, be a believer. The hope of the resurrection was all around Thomas. God's fingerprints were seen everywhere if Thomas was willing to see. He must fight through the bitterness of a broken heart. He must work through the disappointment of unmet expectations. He must realize the faulty understanding of who Jesus was and why he's become. And only then, when he understand and saw Jesus, the resurrected Lord, would he be able to recognize Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Ocean Park, the kindness of the Lord confronts us in our doubts. He comes to us in our need. He comes to us in our unbelief and brokenness to reach out his nail-scarred hands and call us to trust in him. Trusting God, quite frankly, is not always easy. Because often we don't understand what in the world God is doing, and quite frankly, we don't always like it. Trusting Jesus requires discipline because we want to, we crave the things of the flesh. We crave what our eyes can see and what our minds can understand and what our hands can touch. 
Trusting Jesus depends on God's grace because our eyes have been blinded by sin, our ears have been closed because of sin, and our mouth is mute because of sin. Thomas's lack of understanding of who Jesus was and what he had come to do had fueled his doubt, and he needed the amazing grace of Jesus that saved a wretch like him and me and you. But when the grace of Jesus came to him, it called him to lean not on his own understanding, but to trust the risen Lord. To trust the living Lord because those who trust the declaration of the risen Christ by faith have peace with God. They have peace with God when hope hurts and when grace amazes us. But also, we have peace with God through the resurrected Christ by faith when our faith shines. Notice in 28 and 29. For Thomas, seeing was believing. He was the one a, of the most ardent skeptics now utters a confession which is most profound at the nature of who Jesus is. Notice verse 28. My Lord and my God. In doing so, he provides this culmination of what John has been doing from John 1.1 to John 20, verse 28 and 29, the culmination of John's writing. D.A. Carson, again in his book Scandalous, describes what happened in that week between verses 25 and 26. This soul searching that Jesus would have gone, or Thomas would have gone through as he mulled over the testimony and the witnesses of the women and the disciples. What if they're really true? What if their saying is really true? I imagine it kept him up at night. What if Jesus really is alive? Did he really come? Is he really go- Was the grave really empty because Jesus is alive? Carson thinks maybe he, the words of Jesus repeated in his mind these claims of truth and identity said, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Before Abraham was born, I am Yahweh, the name of God. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. If the resurrection was true, these words of Jesus would take on new significance. But it was not just Jesus' words and his claims of truth and identity with the Father, but it was his actions and his deeds while he lived on earth. Time and time again, we see that Jesus announces the forgiveness of sins. We've been looking in Mark when the the, uh, paralytic was raised through the roof. And rather than Jesus pronouncing him, rise and walk and go, what does he first say? Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees immediately answered, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins. So we have a choice, as as Thomas is thinking through, and you and I think either Jesus is a raving megalomaniac who thinks he's God, or he actually is God. He really is God in flesh, and this took on a profound new understanding with Thomas. And these things are, are mulling. We don't know what Thomas was thinking between that week of visits. 
but on seeing the resurrected Lord, his master, he finally realizes the significance of who Jesus really is, God himself. The divine triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And the resurrected man that stood before him was none other than God the Son. This is the very thing John is trying to teach us. In the beginning, the, the first bookmark, the bookend, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, Word with God, and the Word was God. Don't let anybody put an A in there, A God. That is a theological eisegesis, putting meaning on the text that wasn't there. You can simply read through John 1 and it's saying that Jesus is significant, that Jesus is very God in the flesh. I mean, John gets to verse 14 and says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John 1 is the bookend about the deity who, of, who Jesus is, and Thomas's confession is the other bookend who holds this full testimony of these signs and wonders, these I am statements of Jesus. John wants you to know who Jesus is, and he uses his Thomas's confession to communicate that. He doesn't want you to think that Jesus is a figment of their imagination. Jesus is not a junior God who is in charge of Jehovah's kingdom. Je John is presenting you that Jesus Christ is God himself. And at that moment, when Jesus comes and appears to them and speaks, peace be with you, it hits Thomas like a load of bricks. It is that peace in the puzzle that when it falls in, all of it makes sense. Because what does John, Jesus, uh, Thomas say? He doesn't say, Jesus, you actually are alive. Whoa! He doesn't say, holy cow, I owe you guys apology. You were telling the truth all this time. I'm sorry, I doubted you. Thomas realized that it was God himself, Jesus Christ, the Son, who was standing in front of him in the person of Jesus, and who had come to earth to rescue him from the bondage of his sin by dying on the cross and taking his wrath and rose again that he may have life and have it abundantly today and for all eternity. And it was incredible to Thomas when he realized this, when the light finally looked on and he looked back and said, it makes all the sense in the world, my Lord and my God. Same thing Charles Wesley in his great song, And Can It Be, declared. He said this, And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's love? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. I want to sing it. How can it be? that thou, my God, should die for me. Ocean Park, only the appropriate, only, the only appropriate response to the resurrected Lord is to say, my Lord and my God.
It's a declaration of faith, and it's a declaration of trust in the Word made flesh who came to say us. Carson puts it this way. He said, 2,000 years later, we who read John's words observe not only the mind-bending notion of the incarnation, God becoming a human being, which is unbelievable, but the utterly shattering fact that this God-man died a substitutionary death, the death of a redeeming lamb. It's staggering to contemplate that the God of the Bible becoming a man, it is even more staggering to contemplate him as he dies our death and then is vindicated in resurrection. Brothers and sisters, friends, those joining us online, this is the declaration of the gospel. God has come to save us. We have not been left in our sin. We have not got what we deserve. Jesus took our sin. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The question this morning that I have for you is, do you believe this? Just as Jesus in John chapter 11 asked Martha when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, he now with Thomas says, do you believe this? Look at what he says in verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And then he gives this, um, this beatitude. Blessed, makarios, are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus doesn't tie, chide Thomas for failing to believe the testimonies of other disciples. He doesn't say, Thomas, your faith is a second class, um, but these are really special. No. Jesus is giving a blessing because he knows there will be those who will come who will not see the resurrected Lord. You and I this morning as we read the accounts of the, of the women at the graveside, of the, of the disciples... Jesus gives this blessing, this beatitude for those who believe without touching the nails and seeing the scars, who believe on Jesus based on the witnesses of the resurrected Lord, of whom now Thomas's witness is a, a profound uh, testimony to the risen Lord. The message is recorded in the gospel. For by grace are you saved through faith. But the question, what is faith? There's a lot of um, definitions out there. Uh, and some people say faith is believing what you cannot prove. That's not correct. Faith is personal and subjective and a private religious choice that has no bearing on the rest of your life. You quietly compartmentalize it one day a week, maybe. That's not biblical faith. It's trusting something that we imagine that couldn't possibly be true, proved true. That's not biblical faith either. There are innumerable things that we can't test and observe and repeat if we only depend on the scientific method, many things of this universe have to be discarded like moral truth or logical truth or historical truth. None of those can be um, tested and observed and repeated. But what the faith of the New Testament writers is calling us to believe is not a blind faith or an ignorant faith. It's a faith that is rooted on the truth claims of the apostles as given to us in God's Word. 
that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That he lived a perfect life. He loved the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and his mind. And he loved his neighbors as himself. That he died as a substitutionary atonement in our place to satisfy the wrath of God which we stood condemned before. That he rose victorious over death and now he reigns over all creation. And that he will return to judge the living and the dead and bring his people to everlasting paradise in the new heavens and the new earth. Ocean Park, most people believe that Jesus lived, but they don't have faith. Most people believe that Jesus was a good man who died a horrific death, but they don't have faith. And that, but that's not what the apostles are calling us to believe. The apostles are calling us to trust the gospel that a risen Lord reigns and has defeated sin and death. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about the resurrection. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, and it would be faithful to also say the word that the other apostles preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance. Here's the contents of this, this claim, these facts, these um, truths that are recorded in God's Word. That Christ died for our sin in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He raised out of the dead the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve, of which Thomas was included. Genuine faith, saving faith is this. Trusting the evidence as declared by the apostles concerning Jesus Christ who has come to save us. You see, look at verse 30 and 31 in John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. There are so many things that Jesus did that are not recorded. But John chose these things. These things are written, were chosen by you, were written down. Why? So that you may believe. That you may have genuine faith in Christ. Not belief like the angels and Satan, the demons and Satan believe. But trusting that Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and death and that we belong to him. And that his death has paid for our sin and his uh, righteousness gives us life eternal as declared that Jesus is alive. The word of God recorded in the gospel of John, all of it, is the record of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that you may believe. These words that we read this morning are words of life that two millennium of believers have read or heard, and they have believed, entrusting it that Jesus Christ is my only hope in life and death, not Jesus plus something else, but Christ alone, through faith alone, because of God's grace alone, that I can receive eternal life. Brothers and sisters, as we read through the apostle, the, the, the gospels of Jesus, it is that we are touching the hands and the side of Jesus. 
We might never hear the, the, the voice of Jesus, but we have the record of the apostles who have recorded the confession of Thomas and the other disciples. And I would pray that you would consider their confessions and the promises of the gospel that say this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, so loved his creation that he did not allow his creation who had rebelled against him, who had rejected and ignored him in his world. As our children's story says, didn't want God to be in charge, so they trusted what they thought they knew, and they believed the lies of the serpent and the enemies of God. And now, because of that, we stand condemned before a just God for committing cosmic treason by trampling on God's holiness and destroying the goodness and the beauty and the truth of God's very good creation. But also the truth of the gospel is that though our sins are many, his mercy is more. The plan of redemption declares that God dwells among us in the person of Jesus, who experienced what it's like to live in a fallen world. He knows our weaknesses and our limitations, yet without sin. God the Son went to the cross to bear the righteous punishment of God the Father by laying down his life as a substitute. And eternal life is found in a risen, victorious, conquering Jesus who overcame the sentence of death because death had no right to hold him because he was without sin. And his righteousness is now given to all those who trust in Jesus and say, he is my only hope in life and death. I pray this morning, Ocean Park, that you would echo the, the confession of Thomas that says, my Lord and my God, that you may have eternal life today and for all eternity. That you would know peace with God because of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. And for those of you who have followed Jesus for many years, or you have believed and you're new to following Jesus, the pages of Scripture are to be read and known and cherished that we may know what Jesus is like and become more like Jesus and that we would not have silent lips, but that we would not hide his truth, that we would not withhold the hope of eternal life to the lost and to the dying and to the angry and to the bitter and to the lost, but that, and we would not waste the death of Christ because the stakes are too great. We must go and tell of the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ is risen. And those who trust the declaration of a risen Christ by faith have peace with God when hope hurts, when grace is amazing, and when faith shines. May we boldly declare this morning with Thomas, my Lord, and my God, that the world may believe in Jesus and that may have life today. I pray that if you don't know Jesus, that you will say, Christ, I have sinned greatly. I have rebelled against you. I stand condemned. 
I cannot have peace with you. But I trust what you did, how you loved me, and you laid your life down on the cross. I trust Jesus. He is my only hope in life and death, and I want to follow him today in faith and baptism. If you want to know more about the gospel, I encourage you, contact the church, email me, text me, call me. It would be my joy to tell you what it means to follow Jesus. And I pray that you would trust him today and declare my Lord and my God. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be bold to cling to Christ who has conquered sin and death and that we would trust you today and every day because Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Shall we, in Christ's name we pray, amen.